Good morning. My name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for coming and joining us this Sunday morning. We're grateful that you're here with us. Before we move any further in the service, uh, if you're between uh, fourth and sixth grade, we want you to know there's a sign lifted up right here that there's a service just for you during the message. Uh, you can follow uh, uh, the sign right here out the back, uh, and they might go up this ramp and into the classroom. Uh, and you guys will be back in time for our last worship song. Well, church, I've had a privilege this past week to have some really wonderful conversations that I love. Last couple weeks, actually, I've had conversations about God's grace, salvation, and baptism. Matter of fact, in the coming weeks, we want you to know that out of those conversations, there will be a couple of baptisms here in the coming weeks. Yeah, praise God. Yeah, amen. Amen. If there's anything to celebrate, it's when someone says, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and they are baptized in front of you. I mean, church, I can't wait to celebrate with you in the coming weeks. But during these conversations, I've also had conversations about grace and, and wrestling with grace. Can God's grace actually be enough for my sins? Those are the questions people are wrestling with. Did, did Jesus' death on my behalf, was it actually enough for all of the sin in my life? Can I stake my life on that? Can I trust that? Whenever I hear someone talk through those things and wrestle about those things, I can't help but remember a time where I wrestled with it too. When I looked at my life, I looked at the state of my life and my sins, and, and someone's telling me about the grace of Jesus, and that he wants me, and that, that he died in my place and took the penalty for my sins, I wrestled with it. Is it really enough? Is it really that good? As I thought back on that time of my life, I remembered who I was. I was lost in my sins. I was perverse in the way I thought. It was difficult to be around at times. I was definitely socially awkward. You might be saying not much has changed, Shane. I was, I was reclusive. I pulled away from people. I was lonely, and I was difficult to be around, and I was very, very self-centered. And yet a group of Jesus followers, they pursued me. They sought after me. They, they saw me, and they noticed me. They, they came towards me. They engaged me. They, they wanted to hear about my life, my story. They wanted to know what was going on, and they actually listened. And then they befriended me. They wanted to spend time with me, and in that, they started to show me the love of Jesus. So when they said his grace was enough, I started to believe it. As I thought back on that, I I had this question that kind of haunts me. I wonder if who I am today would have came after me then. What if I had come after me? The way I'm living my life, the way I interact with sinners, the, the way I look at people, would I have even noticed me, let alone pursued me, loved me? Can I ask the pointed question this morning? Can I ask, be relationally blunt with you? Can the thing that feels like a weight in the air that's about to drop? I wonder this morning, would you have come after me? Would you have noticed me? Someone like me? The way you're living your life, the, the people that you have at your dinner table, the people that you spend your free time with, do they look like me? Would you have noticed me? Someone who was self-centered, someone who was difficult to love, someone who hated the church, someone who would have hated you. Would you have come after me? This morning, we must wrestle with this question. I must wrestle with this question. You must wrestle with this question. Each one of us, because to go to love and to befriend the most lost people in the world is to look like Jesus himself. 
Luke 19.10 says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is telling us why he came. He said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I want to encourage you. It's it's Luke 19.10. It's behind me on the screen. You could just have it. but, But I encourage you, if you have a pen, write those words down. It's a short sentence. Commit it to memory. If it's not already there, remember these words. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is our anchor verse today. My favorite nickname Jesus ever earned was given to him by the Pharisees, religious people. They meant it as a dis. They they, they wanted to put Jesus down when they called him a friend of sinners. But they were just speaking the truth. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And the way that that looked to the religious at the time was offensive, questionable, and perhaps unwise. As a matter of fact, just two verses before the verse that we just read, the religious in the crowd were grumbling that Jesus entered into the home of a sinner to be his guest. It didn't make sense to them. Something looked wrong about it. They they saw Jesus, this righteous rabbi, and he goes into the home of a known sinner, and something about that is offensive to them. Look at that and say, that can't be right. That's wrong. Does he even know who that person is? Their idea of righteousness was one that kept its distance from sinners, and Jesus was going into the home of one. And what this reveals is that there's not only something wrong with the Pharisees' eyes, but there's something wrong with their heart, something much deeper. And this morning, I have the privilege of preaching on what it means to have a missional heart. And here's what I'm praying for this morning, what I've been praying for, is that God's truths would shape our hearts this morning. That what we hear from God's word and who he is, true things from scripture, that they would form our hearts in a way that we become missional as a people. My prayer is not that God would awaken one or two missionaries in this room, but that God would form a missional church that would leave this building and see the lost. That every one of us would say, I want that heart because that heart looks like Jesus's. So looking at our anchor verse for today, Luke 19.10, let's ask two questions from it. What does it mean when it says the lost? Jesus, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save the lost. And what does it mean and how did it look like Jesus seeking them? So first, let's look at what it means to be lost. Whenever we start a discussion about what it means to be lost, we should start with ourselves. It's a helpful place to start because every single person has been lost. If you are in Christ this morning, there was a time where you were not. Even if your testimony is that you came to Christ at the age of two, you were lost, and then you were found. And so we should start with ourselves. It's it's a universal experience, and it started all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve. I think sometimes we make the mistake in church that everyone knows all the same stories. So I'm going to summarize the garden story for a second. God made Adam and Eve and he placed them in a garden. It was a place where God would dwell with humanity and live in relational unity. The garden was filled with beautiful and delicious things to eat. But God told Adam not to eat of just one tree. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. He said if they did, they would surely die. Now a serpent came and he tempted Eve to eat of the tree, and she, knowing of God's command, took from the tree its fruit and ate it. Why? Because it looked good, and it promised to make one like God himself. And that's important. I want you to remember that, that that it looked good, but, but the reason why she took it and ate of it is the serpent told her it would make her like God himself. She also churned and gave some to her husband, who apparently was just standing there and did absolutely nothing. A talking serpent comes along and tempts your wife to eat some fruit, and you just stand there. And he takes it, and he eats of it. 
Then they saw that they were naked and they felt shame. They cover themselves up as best as they can and they hear God coming in the garden, walking in the garden, and so they hide themselves. So I want you to look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 through 10 with me. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound, that's, this is Adam, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Do you see the question God asks in the passage? Where are you? Where are you? It's a silly question, right? I mean, God knows exactly where they are. He knows physically exactly where they are. He is all-knowing and all-present. So why does God ask that question and have it recorded in Scripture? Well, I, I wonder if it's like this. Most days when I come home now, I enter into my front door, and as soon as I enter the door, I hear a, a, a shout, a declaration. Daddy, I'm hiding! And if the loud shout from underneath the chair that's right in front of me on the floor wasn't enough to give away where she's hiding, her legs are sticking out the backside. My poor daughter, Eloise, knows to hide her head. And I know exactly where my daughter is. But for her sake, I say out loud, I wonder where Lulu is. And then she jumps out and says, hey, here I am. I believe God asks out loud, where are you for our sake? Our sake. It's a question that communicates something far more than where are Adam and Eve physically in the garden. It's asking, where have you gone? Relationally, where are you? See, they were lost. When they disobeyed God, they became lost. Their relationship with God was severed. They became afraid. They hid themselves. And their sin was not an innocent mistake. It was a desire to be like God, to usurp God, to replace God with ourselves. She saw it and said, it would make me like God, and so she ate it, and so did he. Humanity ever since has been lost. And our lostness is not an innocent mistake. We hate God in our sin. As Roman 1 says, we suppress the truth about God. We ignore that everything in creation screams that there is a God who created everything, and instead we work to exalt ourselves. We want to replace him. Our lostness is a rebellion against God that started in the garden and has spread to the end of the earth ever since. And God declared that the penalty for, death, or for sin is death. And we're not talking about physical death alone. We're talking about eternal spiritual death. A separation from God forever. The doctrine of hell is not a common table conversation topic, is it? I don't know about your home. As a matter of fact, it seems in America it's not a, a common pulpit talk, topic either. Very few want to talk about what the Bible calls a place of eternal punishment. A place that's described in Scripture as a lake of fire. Some people seemingly ask, hopefully, well, well it can't literally be a lake of fire, right? And I think this question misses the point. I believe it's likely that a lake of fire is a metaphorical language, but what are metaphors used for? They're used when words fail to describe something. So I don't know if hell is a literal lake of fire, but I know this, it's certainly not less than one. The Bible also describes hell as a place of eternal separation from God and eternal lostness. And that right there is more awful than anything we can imagine. In this world today, this broken world, this lost world, there's still grace here. 
there's goodness, there's beauty, there's truth. God still has it in this world. He is still here. He is present. But eternal lostness from God is a place that is mixed with none of the goodness of God. As I was writing this section of the sermon out, I was reminded of a story I heard once, and I couldn't find the story again. So, so I'm probably going to get details wrong. If someone knows this story, please you know, tell me later. But I'm going to try to recapture it from my memory. So I'm paraphrasing here. There was a seminary professor, and he was brilliant and deeply admired by his students. In fact, his students often wanted to impress him They wanted to uh, stand out from the rest of the class. Near the end of one semester, he had a dinner in his home, and he invited some students who had been excelling in his courses to his home. And over that dinner table was some deep and interesting theological conversations. The students were engaged, the teachers engaged, the the professor, they're they're talking back and forth over topics. And, and, And they were asking questions, and and they were giving opinions. But as you might guess, because the students were young and maybe a little arrogant and and eager to impress, there was a lot of pontificating, a lot of showing off, a lot of thinking impressive thoughts of themselves as they speak. And the conversation turned to the doctrine of hell. And the student after student began to take their turns talking about all that they know about hell and and the realities of hell and and how sinners are going to go there. And and they're just talking about the topic and the doctrine of hell. And they're going back and forth, and they are lost in conversation. And finally, one of the students recognizes, realizes in that moment they haven't heard from the professor in a while. So he turns and looks over at the professor and says, Professor, what do you think? And the professor is looking down at the table and is silent. And, and one by one, as all the students turn to look at the professor, a silence falls over the table. They all quiet down. And in the silence over that table, they could hear that professor weeping. Brothers and sisters, hell is a real truth in Scripture. It's one of two places where the wrath of God against sins, unmixed with any grace, will ever be poured out. So the question for every person ever is this, will you drink the wrath of God and eternal lostness from him forever? Or will you accept that Jesus drank it on your behalf on the cross? Those are the two options. It's a hard doctrine. It's not easy, but I think there are two very wrong responses to this truth. First, we can neglect the doctrine of hell, the consequences of our sins against the perfect God. We can pull away from it, not talk about it. We can ignore it. We can look at scripture passages about it and say, well, it can't really mean that. And we belittle it. And what we do when we do that is we make little of our sins and even less of God. It shrinks our view of God's holiness. It shrinks our view of the vileness of our sins. And when we do this, the gospel becomes less glorious. And we can almost work ourselves into a place where we think to ourselves, of course God saved me. Of course he did. Matter of fact, God might be evil not to save everyone. It's a view that guts the cross of its meaning. Why did Jesus have to come and die and save us anyways if we're all pretty good? If I sort of deserve heaven already, Jesus, why did you have to come here and die in my place? We're not that bad. Our circumstances aren't that dire. See, when we make little of God's word, it robs us of joy and awe. And I think all of this leads us to have a very shallow heart towards the lost. Many of us spend more time wishing the realities of hell weren't true than actually telling people they don't have to go there in the first place. See, erasing the doctrine of hell does not seem to provoke missions. I just don't see it. 
Instead, we just think, well, they'll be all right. Jesus has died in our place. He took the full wrath for our sins. And we can be found before it's too late. That is the gospel. Secondly, the other mistake I think we can make around the doctrine of hell is that we can be like the students at that table. See, there are some here who struggle. They, they, it, your, your temptation is to make less of truths in Scripture. And others of us, we can just say, yeah, of course I believe that. Yep, hell's real. It's a doctrine. I believe in my Bible. These things are true. And, and we can have that up here and say, yeah, I even understand. Sinners should go to hell. And there's nothing felt in our heart towards the loss. It's all up here. We know the right things. We believe the right things. And and some reason we can keep them in our thoughts and not let them penetrate our hearts and move us. Church, I want you to know that what leads people to go, you read mission biographies or the countless stories of people who their stories have never been recorded in any book who go to lost people in difficult places or what leads people to leave their church pews on a morning like this and go and reach the lost people just down the street are people who believe deep theological truths about God. They don't make less of them. And then they take those truths and they feel them. They press down into their hearts. And they can't help but go. Because if this is true then I have something they need to hear. Church, let's not make little of Scripture and feel no desire to go to the lost. And not, let's not think thoughts about Scripture, but not feel them. Let's take both of them and press them into our hearts and go. That's what we need. Church, does the reality of hell move you and the reality that you should have gone there before we go on before we go on in the the sermon i think we need to take a moment and just sit in silence and here's what i think we need to do here's what i would ask you to do this morning if you have faith in jesus this morning if you've been saved by him during that silence I want you to think about that he has saved you. That the reality of where you deserve to go, but grace has given you what you don't deserve in Jesus, and you have been saved from that. And praise God. Thank and praise God. Take a moment to cultivate appreciation and praise to God for the gospel in your heart. And if this morning you're not sure, if you're sitting there and you're saying, I know I'm a sinner and I'm not sure grace is enough for me, or or, or you say, I don't know if I fully believe right now, can I plead with you in this moment of silence, can you take a moment and consider this? Jesus came for you. He came to seek and save the lost. He came exactly for you. You say, no, I I have all these sins. Yes, he came for you. You're exactly who he came for. And he loves you, and he sees you, and he knows everything you've done and everything you thought, and he still loves you and sees you. And right now, this morning, you can be found. So church, let's just take a moment and let these truths address our hearts and pray that they change us and soften us before we move on in the sermon.
What does it mean that Jesus came to save the lost? It means he came to die so we could be found. So now let's consider our other question. What does it mean that Jesus would seek us? What does it mean that he came to seek the lost? God came down from heaven in the form of a man, and his mission statement if it is our anchor verse today. He said, why I came, he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. So what does that look like? We know to save the lost is he will die for them, but, but what shape does seeing this or seeking take? What does it look like? So I want to look at another story in the Gospels. It's in Matthew chapter 9. It's verse 9 through 13, and it reads like this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Oh, Jesus Christ, friend of sinners. See, the Pharisees want to know why Jesus has meals with these sinners, and they say it out loud. Why, why does Jesus eat with these sinners? I mean, it's loud enough where Jesus hears it, so it's likely some of the sinners heard it too. And Jesus says aloud in front of everyone, I've come for the sick. I've come for the sinners. Now, he doesn't excuse the sin of those that he's there with. He doesn't say it doesn't matter, but he says, these are the people I want to be with. And he openly challenges the religious in front of the sinners. He challenges the Pharisees to learn what Hosea 6.6 means, a verse that Chris preached just last week. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. See, God desires not the form of religion. He desires the real thing. Not, not people who think they're healthy, but people who know they are not. Not burnt offerings, but relational knowledge of God. He wants people not to be lost anymore. He is seeking them. And guess what? In this story, there are two groups of lost people. There are sinners, they are lost in their sin, and there are the Pharisees who are lost in their self-righteousness. You know who's closer to being found? Those that know they're sick. So Jesus seeks the lost by going to them. He befriends them, he eats with them, he defends them. And some of us need to hear that this morning. Some of us have hard hearts towards sinners. We think we're better than them. We think that some sinners are beneath us. We're tempted to think, like, yeah, yeah, Shane, Shane, I, I'm with you, Shane. I'm like most sinners. I'm pretty bad, but not like that sinner. Not like that sin. He means all the other sins, but that sin, that's the one that's too far. And when we do that, we say there are people that, that we can't go to, we can't sit down with, we can't love or befriend. And what does that mean? That means that we're not going to go to them, so God's going to have to give them a dream to save them. He's going to have to do a miracle in their hearts, and once they clean up a little bit and come closer, then I'll go to them. Jesus seeks the lost. When we in self-righteousness look at a sinner and think they are less than us, when we think they are too lost for me to love and befriend, I think these verses show us that Jesus is more offended by our sin of self-righteousness than their sin. That we would look at people and say, I'm better than them because I don't do this. And, and, and now I have some level above them. I can look down on them. It's disgusting. Should Christians befriend and love cross-dressers, heroin addicts, strippers, abortion advocates, militant atheists, and openly gay couples? Yes. Yes. Absolutely yes. 
And not only should you love and befriend them, you should seek them out. Pursue them. Don't wait for them to come to you. Why would they? We go to them. You know, I, earlier this week, I, I had this thought, I, or I was listening to something, it was talking about wealth. When we get more money, we tend to pull away from people, Right? We, we tend to build buffers between us and others. You get more money, you stop driving public transportation. You get more money, you drive first class. You fly first class. You're not in the coach with the rest of us smucks. Right? You, you get more money, you pull your kids out of public school. You put them in a smaller private school. You go into a nicer neighborhood. Maybe there's a gate on the front. Your, your yards are more spread apart. Even your bedroom to your kid's bedroom are further apart. You spread out. And conversely, when we have less money, we seem to live closer together. We're pressed together. And I wonder if in our spiritual wealth church, we have done the same. Have we received the gospel and we bask in the wealth of the good news and the wealth of scriptures and good teaching here and we create space between others? Has the church become a country club? Do we pull away from sinners and keep them at arm's length? And how abhorrent that must be to God because the gospel doesn't give us wealth so that we can hoard it for ourselves. It gives us abundant wealth, more than we can ever spend to go to the poorest spiritual places in the world and spread the good news. It's a wealth that is entrusted to us so that we go. And we bring it to those who are desperate for it. Now some here are likely nodding our heads, chomping at the bit. Yeah, Shane, get them. I want to bring two cautions. First, Jesus never excused their sin. He didn't tell sinners he was with, it's okay, God didn't really mean that in the Bible. He didn't say, no, that, that must be, it, it can't be that. You, you're okay. You can keep doing those things. No, a matter of fact, Jesus called out sin, in particular in those who didn't know they were sinning. And he showed abundant compassion to those who knew they were sinners. But Jesus wasn't afraid to call sin, sin. Matter of fact, if we want to know how much God hates sin, we look at the cross of Jesus Christ. But if you want to know how much God loves people, you look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because he's hanging there, taking it for us. Let's not fall in the trap that to truly love people, we need to pretend sin isn't sin. But also, let's not create distance between them. Let's move towards the sinners. Secondly, my caution there's a lie in Christendom that you can't be righteous around sinners if we want to share the gospel with them. I've heard it all my life. It's just not attractive. We probably should swear a little bit more. Watch all the same things. If I'm drinking with someone, I better keep up. I don't want them to feel like I'm looking down on them. And the lie is that righteousness would look unappealing to the world. And there's partly truth in this. We're told the world will hate us. The world will be offended by us. But sometimes I think we're just plain offensive and then blame sinners for hating us. Let that sink in. See, we know this is a lie that righteousness always looks unappealing to the world because of this. Jesus. The perfect righteous one. Jesus, perfect in righteousness, never sinned, didn't compromise in any way, eating with sinners, and guess what? They found him deeply appealing. Why? How could that work? How could righteousness be appealing to the lost? Because righteousness isn't anything like the counterfeit of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness creates a distance between the spiritual haves and the spiritual have-nots, that is something to be revulsed by. It's to be repented of. But real righteousness moves towards the spiritually have-nots. It seeks them out. And it sees them. 
It listens to them. It talks to them. It engages them. It walks with them. It befriends them and loves them. It has meals. It has conversations over watering wells. It looks like Jesus. It's righteousness that eats with, laughs with, and enjoys the company of sinners. Jesus was always inviting them in deeper. God was coming after the lost to have relationship with them, so of course when he came to earth, he would be found befriending sinners. He moved towards the lost so they could see him and be found again. So church, let's open up our homes. Let's have meals with sinners. Let's laugh with atheists. Let's invite the gay couple down the street over for dinner. Don't wait for the lost to come to you. Go to them. Now, you might want to slow me down. You might say, wait a minute, Shane. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Why do I have to seek them now? Because Jesus' wonderful plan was to make his church his body. To send his church to the ends of the earth, making disciples. In the passage we call the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go. Go. Tell them who I am. Make followers of me. We now have a message to take to the world. We do not save the lost. Praise God we don't save the lost. Praise God it doesn't depend on me to save the lost. But where to go to them? Paul says it like this. He says in Romans, how, the lost are, how are the lost to believe if no one goes to them and preaches the good news of Jesus? And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says we've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. That is the reconciliation between God and man. Lost people and God. People can be found in relationship with God again. They must come in the name of Jesus. So we must go to them. We must seek them out. And we must carry with us the message that's been entrusted to us that Jesus has saved them. That's the work of the church. So I want to take the remainder of our time this morning and give two pastoral exhortations. If we put together all that we've said so far, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and we allow the reality and the weight of our own sin to humble us, and we allow the greatness of God as our Savior, we remember that, and we let the reality of wrath of God against sins, which is hell, where there will be eternal separation from God to soften our hearts. If we see that Jesus didn't wait for sinners to come to him, but he pursued them, he befriended them, he loved them. And if we put all that together and now see that God is calling us to go and seek them out, pursue them, and tell them that he has saved them, then what do we do when we walk out the doors this morning? Church, what do we do? First, you take a step towards the lost today. Take a step towards the lost today. Do it today. Don't wait till tomorrow. We're very good at saying, I'll get to that tomorrow. Well, we said that yesterday, so let's get to it today. Take a step towards the lost today. Now, that can seem scary and overwhelming. You might say, I don't even know what that looks like. So I'm going to give you two very easy steps we can take. And for those who hear these steps and say, Shane, that's not enough, just wait till pastoral exhortation number two. Step one, we have these cards in the lobby. Just to celebrate Christmas at Metro. And on the back, it has our services and the dates that they are. Take one and give it to someone else. Invite someone to church with you. Now, I'm going to ask you, like, I don't want you just to invite them to church. I want you to invite them to church with you. Say, I want you to be there. Would you come? Let me know which Sunday you're coming because I want to sit with you. Because we don't want to invite them just in here. We want to invite them into our lives. And if you can't think of anyone that you could hand this to that wouldn't feel like a cold drop, like, I don't want you to take this and walk out and just, like, first person you see, like, job done, Shane. Right? Engage someone in relationship. 
So think about it. Take it. If you don't have someone immediately, I want you to put this somewhere where you see it and start praying over it. Lord, who do you want me to give this to? And then I want you to look at your coworkers. I want you to look at your neighbors. I want you to look at the people that your kids play sports with. I want you to think of real people and invite them in. Take a card in the lobby. Invite someone into the life of the church. Too. This seems very self-serving since I'm over local missions, but register for neighbor to neighbor. It's this coming Saturday, and can I just share briefly with you? I don't know what it is about this time, but, but every time, the majority of the homeowners I've spoken to, they've broken down in tears in their front lawn. I think God's doing something. There's, there's, a, there's a single mom. Uh, this last Saturday, I'm standing in the front yard with a single mom and, and a code enforcement officer to my right. And I'm telling this single mother who has a 17-year-old autistic nonverbal son, and she is trying to balance all that comes with life. And her yard is in violation, and she needs help. And I'm talking to her, and I tell her, hey, we don't want your money. We just want you to know that the God in heaven sees you, and he loves you. She broke out into spontaneous praise, and she looked up at the sky, and with tears going down her cheeks, started saying, hallelujah, hallelujah. And it was weird looking. The code enforcement officer to my right is uncomfortable. But church, do you hear that? There are people out there, I don't know where she's at spiritually, but there are broken people in this world who are desperate for the church to come to them. Will you go? So take a card. Would you register for neighbor to neighbor? I don't have a, I'm preaching today, so I won't be out there with a laptop. So just go to our website, uh, go to the event and, and fill it out. We need more volunteers. I'm not saying it because I have abundance of volunteers. We need more to actually do the work we have set before us. So if you're free, come. Bring your son. Bring your daughter. Bring your wife. Bring, bring your husband. Bring the whole family. We need you. We need you. And taking steps like this towards people that we don't normally step towards has a way of softening our hearts. Even the littlest step is more than no step at all. So let's have the truths we're hearing this morning move us to actually pick up a foot and take a step. All right, my second pastoral exhortation. Go. Go. Now you might be like, Shane, that's totally unfair. Take a step. That's going. Yeah, but go is a biblical command, so I'm going to go. I'm going to tell you to keep going, to go further, to go after them. Don't be content in taking a step today and ending it there. Be the kind of people that go towards sinners because the righteousness of Christ did. You know, Paul tells us that the love of Christ compels us. When was the last time you felt the love of Christ compelling you to move towards a sinner? If it's been a while... Can I just encourage you not to just acknowledge that and move on, but can you hold on to that and take that to God? Why, Lord, has your love not compelled me to go towards sinners? Like a hand pressed on your back pushing you forward, do you feel the love of Jesus compelling you in their direction? Move towards the loss. I think sometimes we get so in our heads so much. We make so many excuses not to go or we complicate it so much, right? We, we come up with all the reasons of what we need to do or, or they need to say something first and it needs to be a perfect scenario and we work ourselves into a place where we're so paralyzed we never go at all or we think that the circumstances where we would go will never happen. And then we just go be content and comfortable again. Church, we have to go. Recently, I remembered a time when I was 19 years old. And usually when I share this story, I don't say it was me because I never want anyone to think that I used the privilege of preaching and teaching God's word to somehow lift myself up in any way. So usually when I talk about this story in a live, I say it was a friend. 
But as I was reflecting on this story this week and thinking about this sermon, I realized I don't know if I would have done what I did when I was 19 years old today. You know, I, I look at myself today and I know that I look more like Christ than I did then. I know that he has accomplished a work in my life and I know I'm being transformed. But sometimes I look back at my 19-year-old self and I realize I might have had some things right then that I don't have right now. And so when I share this story today, I don't want you to hear it as me saying, hey, here's this great example of Shane. I want you to hear it as a story of example that's confronting me and messing with me this week. I'm wondering with you, is this who we are? I was 19 years old and I was going to a meeting for a retreat, a planning meeting for a retreat called Teens Encountering Christ. I think it's through the Lutheran Church. It was something I went to when I was a little bit younger. And I was coming back and I was going to be a leader at this event. So I was getting out of my car and at, at a church and I saw a group of people from a local church. This church, these people, they're about an hour away from where I live and where I was at that moment. They, they live in Waldorf, Maryland. I lived in Bowie, Maryland. It means nothing to any of you here, but it's true. Right? So they live about an hour away, and I see them, and I walk up, and I say, hey, where's Mark? And that wasn't his real name, but that's what I'm going to use today. Mark was tall, and, and I could see really quickly he wasn't here. And I wanted him to be here because I met him a year before at this thing and, and he was awesome and he was going to lead this year or be a part of the leadership. And I said, where's Mark? And, and they kind of look downcast when I ask. And they tell me, like, Mark is not doing well. He's pulled away from the church. He's fallen into a new crowd. He started using drugs. He's not really following Jesus anymore. And in that moment when I heard that, it was like a hand went on my chest and started pushing me. I don't even know if I took the time to say, cool, I'll see you later. But next thing I knew, I was in my car and I was driving towards Waldorf, Maryland. I'm just driving. I didn't have a plan at all. I just was praying in the car, Lord, when I see him, when I meet him, will you give me the words to say? And I was driving because I was coming after my friend. But I probably should have done two things first. I probably should have looked at his friends from his church and said, hey, do you know where he lives? And do you have his phone number? So I'm driving to Waldorf about an hour away from my house, and this next part's no surprise to anyone who knows me at all personally. But halfway there, my phone dies. I didn't charge it. I don't have a cord. So I'm driving and I'm getting close to water from Maryland. I have no idea what I'm doing. So I go and do what any confused lost Christian would do. I go to a Chick-fil-A. <laughs> I go inside to find a team member and I say, do you guys have a phone book? They pull out a phone book and put it down on the table. I say, can I use your phone? Yes. So I'm holding a landline at Chick-fil-A. And I flip to his last name. And there are so many because it's a common last name. And I'm just calling one by one. Hello, is Mark there? No, there's no Mark here. Okay, goodbye. And I'm going through the list. And I don't know how many people I called till finally a woman admitted she had a son named Mark. Mark's mom says, Mark's not home right now. Oh, where is he? Well, he went to a local concert. I understand. I hang up the phone. I go back to my car. Do I drive home? No. I drive to the concert venue. I buy a ticket and I go inside. And it's dark. Like the only light's coming from the stage. So, so you have to get in front of someone and turn around awkwardly and look them in the face to see them. And I'm just looking at the silhouettes and, and on the periphery, on the outside, the easy pickings, the low-hanging fruit. No one's tall enough to be Mark. So he must be in that group that's pressed in front of the stage dancing and moshing. So I start throwing elbows. And I'm going in there. And I'm dancing around and I'm yelling, Mark! Mark! And it must have been so annoying. And I kept doing that until I bumped right into him. And he looked so surprised to see me, and I was so relieved to see him. And we went outside. 
and I asked him, what's going on? And I drew him out, and I talked to him, and I prayed with him, and I told him, no matter what, I love him, and I will be there for him. That I heard where he was at, and I needed to see him. Why do I share that story this morning? Because I'm wrestling with the question I asked you at the beginning. Would I have gone after me? Church, would you go after me? We don't have a time machine this morning. We can't, we can't jump in it and, and live that scenario out, but we have a more starker reality. Out the doors of this building right now are people who are lost just like me and just like you. Church, will we move towards them? Will we be compelled towards them? Will the gospel carry us to them? Will we go to the lost and move closer? Church, will we seek them out? We can't save them, only Jesus can. But right now, what we celebrate this morning, what I hope everyone here celebrates is the good news that Jesus came and saved you when you were lost. And he's near to you now. And he's holding us. And and we gather together in here and we celebrate together and we exalt in the wealth of the gospel and we should. Will we leave these walls and go to the poorest places and spread it? Church, I wonder if the self-righteous would look at our church and honor us with the name. That church is a friend of sinners. Would the self-righteous look at a church and be uncomfortable? Not because we invite sinners in and, and, and we have a low view of God's word, a low view of scripture, not because we say sin isn't sin, but because we have the righteousness that Christ did, that we would move towards them, befriend them, hear them, and love them, that they would sit with us. What will change our hearts this morning? What will lead us to actually go? We don't need a rah-rah sermon. We don't need another go sermon. We need to have the realities, these truths felt in our hearts. And so as we sing this next song, church, can I ask you to do this? We sing this song, will you sing and see your story in it? Just revel, bask in your story of how Jesus has rescued you, whether you were two years old or whether you were older. And if you are not sure today, if you're standing here and you're wondering, is God's grace enough for me? If you're wondering, could God really forgive someone like me? I plead with you, brother. I plead with you, sister. Today, be found in Jesus. Sing with us. We want to invite you into this song. We want this story to be yours. That the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost like us. And we rejoice together in it. Church, let's worship and treasure our Savior right now. And then let's take the wealth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and go tell it to the sick and the lost and the lonely. They are desperate to hear that Jesus sees them, wants them, and is enough. Church, let us go.